Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say. Hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And our first guest who lives in New Jersey. Now. Now. <laughs> it's Jeff Smith here. Former state senator from the 4th Senatorial District, which was about half of the city of St. Louis. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, you probably have seen him on all sorts of cable television shows, but now he is taking time to come on a public radio show at this point. So we, Well, we are, he's in St. Louis and some other stuff. He, he, yes. Thanks for ruining the magic. Sorry. Joe. I'm sorry. Well, that's my job is to ruin the magic. I would have come here just for you, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. So... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, tell us about, you know, what you, you know, used to be in politics, where you are now, and all the things in between. Okie doke. Um, So, first of all, great to be back in St. Louis. Great to be with you guys, Jason and Joe. So, I am living just outside New York City. Uh, I have a professorship um, of urban policy at the New School. Uh, I teach graduate students who are getting their uh, master's or PhD. And In, uh, in what? in urban policy okay okay so public policy with an urban focus um my uh before that i had taught political science various places Uh, i have a background as a political scientist and also a little bit as a politician Uh, as you know i ran for congress unsuccessfully in 2004 uh lost a a pretty close race to congressman Russ. by the way do you want to say uh hello to russ carnahan in french or hebrew Uh, what Bonjour, <laughs> Roos. That's a that's a I'm making fun of Mark Halpern right now. Anyway, I get it. I get it. That was great. His little insulting thing to uh, really, frankly, pretty embarrassing. It was uh, it was embarrassing. Yeah, it was embarrassing. But continue. Okay. Uh, and anyway, so I'm you, doing a couple things now. I've got the teaching won, gig in New York you, City. You 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 won for the state senate in 2006. Ran for the state senate in 2006. Won represented as you said about half the city. Uh, loved that great experience. Resigned three years later, and in 2009, because of a campaign finance complaint that Russ Carnahan had filed dealing with the 2004 election. To yes. Be, to be, no. Yes. E- exactly. And my response to that complaint, which was I signed a false affidavit with the FEC. Uh, do not do that for our listeners, just so you know. So no, I uh, yeah, I signed a false affidavit in the wake of the 2004 election, and then my uh, former best friend uh, Steve Brown um, wore a wire. Uh, for a while in 2009 and, and got me to allude to uh, to that affidavit on tape. So then I spent a, uh, almost a year in federal prison, came out of that and started uh, doing some consulting for uh, the affordable housing, uh, an umbrella group in Missouri that tries to protect state affordable housing uh, incentive programs. And I've been doing that for a little over four years now. Aren't you the executive director? I am the executive director of the Missouri Workforce Housing Association. And uh, we fight for the uh, state low-income housing tax credit, Mm -hmm. for the affordable housing, uh, a variety of affordable housing programs, which are really, uh, through state incentive programs, about the only way that, that good uh, safe, affordable housing is built in Missouri. Now, so, d- during this last session, wh- was that tax credit under threat at all? Um, there were some 
there were some bills that were filed to uh, to reduce the credit, but uh, nothing came close to passing. Yeah, because in the past couple of sessions, it has been under some pretty fierce attack, mainly by Republicans, but also some Democrats, too. I mean, the governor has, I think, signed on, at least philosophically, to quote-unquote tax credit reform, and that usually means curtailing the low-income housing tax credit. But what I've noticed is there's always pushback to get rid of any tax credit, but especially the low-income housing and, tax and credit. And this, this year, with all the other stuff going on, it, sur- it surprised me a bit. Tax credit issue in general just wasn't a big uh, player in the General Assembly this time. It wasn't like something that was that was governing a lot of the attention. Why do you think that was? I think there's a few reasons for it. One of them is that uh, you know the need for affordable housing continues to be pretty acute. And the uh, people understand the waiting lists are really long, mm-hmm. particularly in our urban areas for, mm-hmm. for affordable housing. Secondly, there have been a lot of projects that have been very successful, uh, and the demand continues to be very high for them. Third, um, the program, the low-income housing tax credit program, was actually cut back in 2009, Okay, the 4% program, and we're beginning to see the impact of some of those cuts. And so both with historic preservation and low-income housing, you've actually seen uh, a decline in, in redemptions from the peak. And so um, that, I think, has taken some pressure uh, off the, the need to cut the program. Has it also made an impact that some of the, the senators who've been loudest against the low-income housing tax credits, like John Lamping, Jim Lemke, uh, you know, those type of Republicans are no longer in office, and they've kind of been replaced by people who are more favorable to the low-income housing tax credit? That has not hurt. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. So during the General Assembly, uh, since you are you live in, in suburban New York slash New Jersey, so do you deal with what's going on in the legislature remotely? Do you come to St. Louis or Columbia? Kind of what's logistically, what do you do? I come back just about every month. Uh, I keep very close tabs on what's going on uh, with session. I have, uh, we have, um, a lot of great grassroots advocates who are following the process closely, uh, a lobbying team. We, um, you know, I have a lot of connections with current legislators and I'm uh, kind of keeping in close touch with them about what's happening, you know, just to get information uh, to know where things are. So I go back and forth a lot, but I also work remotely and uh, they're, they're great to allow me to do that. Well, let's kind of talk about the current crop of legislators, including one former legislator, John Deal, the former House Speaker. Um, How well did you know him? I knew John fairly well. Um, you know, we weren't super close, but uh, I I was very close and continue to be friends with uh, close friends with Steve Tilley, you know, the former speaker. And John Deal um, early on was identified, uh, I think, by by Representative Tilley as somebody who was a you know very bright, very ambitious, uh, great political acumen, really got the legislative process, great fundraiser, you know, kind of a lot of the tools. Uh, that, that people identify as, as having leadership potential. So I got to know him uh, his first year, and, you know, I liked him a lot. I, I thought he was a very bright guy. Now, you know, as, as you kind of alluded to, you know, actually, let me back up for a second. It seems like there is a somewhat of a trend in Missouri politics of House speakers getting in some sorts of trouble, going back, I think, to Bob Griffin, Jim Kreider, Rod Jetton, um, even to some extent, Steve Tilley, although I would say his problems were, were not really legal. They were more personal. Yeah, yeah. So why do you think that people in these high positions end up making some of these, these, these errors in judgment? 
and I clearly made some of my own Didn't errors work. in judgment, uh, although I was not a House Speaker. I would say that, that and I think Rod Jetton, uh, and Rod and I, in the interest of full disclosure, of we are um, business partners now. Yeah. We, uh, we speak around the country to state legislatures. Um, we've spoken in Kentucky, uh, in um, various states, in Wyoming. What about? To, uh, we spoke... Um, to all the speakers of the House around, from around the country and state Senate presidents about ethical dilemmas in public life, trying to tell our stories and explain uh, where we went wrong and hopefully steer other um, legislators and in particular legislative leaders who have so much power away from making some of the mistakes that we've made. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, Rod and I would probably agree that uh, you get a sense of invincibility when you have a lot of power. The office of, of speaker in Missouri is extraordinarily powerful. Some might argue it's even more powerful than the governor's office mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a lot of respects because the governor is presented with a, you know, a, a binary decision, sign a bill or veto it. And the person who really shapes that whole piece of paper, you know, that, that, that document on his desk is the speaker of the house. Nothing a speaker of the house, th that a speaker of the house does not want to become law becomes law. Yeah. You know? If, if they want to kill something, they have 15 different stages of the process where they can kill it. They can prevent it from ever even going to a committee. Mm -hmm. They can find a friendly senator. And this is how Rod and I, Rod Jett and I became close. He needed to pretend that he was supporting certain things that he really didn't want to become law. Mm -hmm. And so he would let them pass the House and then find a friendly senator, cut a deal with someone like me to, you know, stand up and talk a lot about the bill. And then maybe a, a bill that I really cared about that would help the city might find its way through the house mysteriously. So, is there a little example, a brief example of such a deal? Um, I'm not going to get into specific legislation that I <laughs> that that I that I stood up on, but I never stood up on a bill that would have helped the city or helped my district. But if there was some bill that I didn't really care about at all, it wouldn't have really helped. You know, my district. I was only too happy to stand up and trade my voice for an sure. hour to delay a bill in exchange for a priority of mine that I knew would help the city a bunch that otherwise would have probably never made it or even gotten a hearing in the House. Yeah. Now, I remember there was a very memorable speech that, that Speaker Tilly made in his last year of, of speakership. I'm not sure you saw, but it was on the first day of session where instead of talking about Republican priorities and rhetoric, he basically talked about how, you know, the, the job of the legislature kind of took way too much of a priority over his family. And he kind of extolled to the other legislators, and I imagine John Deal and others were in the audience, that you really need to take the time to, you know, put family first, to make sure that your friends and the things that matter to you are the priority. You know, it was actually, I think, one of the best speeches opening day that I've ever heard from the speaker. And you know, we've had Speaker Tilly on before. He was one of the best guests we've ever had. And we're on. hoping to get him on again. And we may be getting him on again soon. So, you know, I, I mentioned that because it's, you know, that advice does go out to people. And as you mentioned, you go out and talk to some of these speakers out there, but they still end up making mistakes. Is it just that they're not listening to you? Is it just that they're presented with, you know, dilemmas that they they may not have anticipated like why I think, do people... Jason it's that power can be very intoxicating yeah and even though you may intellectualize you know or intellectually realize that you could get into trouble for a certain activity you think you know what um, it, probably you won't get caught and you know what uh, you're you're smart you know you you 
from the minute you get elected like to the Senate and definitely from the minute you become speaker, all your jokes get funnier, you get better looking, everybody wants to be around you, mm -hmm. right? And again, that could be very intoxicating and you begin, I think in a lot of cases, to believe your own, the hype uh, about yourself. And so when that happens, an opportunity presents itself and no one has said no to you for a long time. Mm -hmm. If you wanna get on a private plane and go see a golf tournament somewhere, there's somebody to, to help you do that. Mm -hmm. If you wanna you know, um, just go out to a fancy dinner or whatever, there's five people in line waiting to take a speaker to dinner every single night. Yeah. And uh, you go years without ever needing to pay for a meal. I mean, Tony Messenger writes a lot about this in the mm -hmm. Post-Dispatch editorial page, but that can have, I think, a profound impact over time. on. Now, I wanted to play this clip because when Todd Richardson was elected speaker, I asked him how his father's experience as a legislator in influenced him. Not a legislature, a legislator, by the way. And I mentioned that not to belabor the point, but Mark Richardson was an extremely promising politician. He came within one vote of becoming speaker, but he had his personal troubles. He namely, was the Republican leader in a in a House that at the time was controlled by the Democrats. And, this you know, is in 1990s. He had to step down because of a drunk driving incident. And I should note, though, that he remained in the legislature, you know, became a circuit court judge. I talked with him last week. He seems to be doing great, by the way. But I asked Todd Richardson, what he learned from his father's experience, and here's what he said. Particularly in my public, in my time in public office, I have uh, taken uh, to heart lessons, both good and bad, that you can learn from watching other people. Um, so um, those are things that, that, lessons that I'll take to heart and things that I, I remember. Um, but I expect my dad will be very proud tomorrow. So do you think because Todd Richardson has seen this experience firsthand and personally that he may be able to avoid some of the pitfalls that other speakers have had? Or do you think that, as you said, power is going to be intoxicating and he, he may encounter some of the same problems, basically? I, I think Todd is a fantastic guy. I've watched him a little bit over the years, you know, met him a, a couple times. I'm so impressed with him, both as, a, as an intellect as a public speaker, I know he was a, a college debater, and if you watched yeah. any of those debates during the Missouri uh, 8th Congressional District primary and you saw him, I think he was kind of heads and tails above everybody yeah. else yes, he was. Uh, I actually out covered there several as of those. a speaker. He's not a demagogue. He's a thoughtful guy. Um, he showed in his first couple of years in the legislature that he can pass com complicated legislation, bringing people together, I guess, with like the second injury second fund, injury fund yeah. uh, fix. And um, I you know, given what he saw both up close and personal with, with his father and then seeing some of the speakers uh, before him, um, I know, okay, I can just tell you this, maybe I'm speaking a lot of school here, but I know that he makes an effort. When you're a majority leader, you know, you are charged with raising money all across the state, meeting, being, helping uh, rank and file legislators raise money by going and appearing at events all across the state. But I know he makes every effort possible to get home to his family and yeah. his kids every single night. And uh, that means a lot. I think he's really done a great job of staying grounded during his ascent. And I believe that, that he'll have a successful speech. Yeah, because Scott Dickhouse compared him to Chris Coster, and not unfavorably, because Chris Coster, for all the that we make fun of him on the show, is extremely promising. I mean, he has to be the front runner for governor now national office if he doesn't get into more campaign finance issues. You know, 
I think that's a favorable comparison yeah. in some respects. So we'll have to see. But as far as Todd goes, you know, I'm going to disagree with a lot of the things he does because the Republican majority stands for Obviously. a lot of things I disagree with. But I think he's a class act, and I think he's he's not going to have uh, these types of issues. Now, when you and, and Rod Jetton go around to these major groups around the country, is there a particular theme that you guys zero in on? I mean, you mentioned that the Missouri House Speaker has a lot of power. In some other states, they may not have as much power. Is there a particular, I mean, if you were to cut it down to, let's say, 30 seconds, what what's your chief uh, uh, advice to these people so they can avoid some of the things that, like, what happened to Deal? Well, 15 seconds for each one of us. Rod says, you know, power and success can bring you down. Uh, you know, really, you know, in, in the same way that I described earlier, that uh, you, you, you forget uh, your grounding. You forget what your mom taught you. Uh, for me, in 15 seconds, never, never say anything you wouldn't want a U.S. attorney to hear. I don't care if you're talking to your best friend. I don't care, if, you know, as Rodney Hubbard, the former state represent, representative, once told me, never trust anybody but your mama and keep one eye on her. Well, I mean, her, his mom is a state representative now. <laughs> but I wanted, to, I wanted to move on a little bit to what happened in the Senate, because I think that you're actually, I mean, you're kind of an expert on everything these because days. Because you no, were in the no, state no. Senate. But no. you were in the state Senate the last time they used the previous question. And I, I have a story about this that will be online while when this airs. But, you know, words like previous question to the layman may seem like arcane, you know, gobbledygook or whatever. Just a procedural term yeah. that's sort of sterile, anodyne. But it doesn't feel that way when you're in the minority in the Senate. No, no. I want you to kind of explain what it feels like to be previous question. Well, in the Missouri Senate, there's a long and rich tradition of unlimited debate. Any senator has the right to speak for as long as he or she wants on any particular issue. And that's used as a way to really get to compromise, right? A senator, if he'll stand up for four, five, six, seven, I... I had times where I stood up for, for eight or nine hours to talk about issues uh, in order to basically make everyone else miserable enough to bring them to the negotiating table to water down the bill until it was acceptable. Uh, and I still probably wouldn't vote for the bill, but I could at least sit down and say it's not so awful that I can't let it pass. Uh, and I know that's Senator Justice uh, and I, former Senator Justice, the former minority leader from Kansas City, you know, she and I took a similar tack uh, in doing a lot of that. Now, because there's that right of unlimited debate, senators do not like to be shut up, mm -hmm. right? And the way that you shut senators up is by this, this arcane procedural motion, very rarely used, moving the previous question. And they only need a simple majority. You only need a simple majority to do it. It's very rarely done from 1970 till 2006 when I was elected. I think it was only done like five or so times, yeah. but then it was done three times just in my first year in the yeah, Senate. Yeah, and I, I wanted just to kind of uh, put the exclamation point on how mad it makes Democrats. I'm going to play a clip from your former colleague, Maida Coleman. I think you were probably at this press conference. It's one of the most uh, memorable end-of-session press conferences ever, and here's why. Punks. There is no backbone roaming around these halls in the suites of the Senate Republicans. Punks. Because I couldn't say my other word that starts with a P. Just a little context there. She was basically saying that the House Republicans forced previous questions in the Senate and was basically calling uh, the senators cowards in a very salty way, essentially. Now, at the time, uh, Mike Gibbons was the head of the Senate. So yeah. he's a Republican from Kirkwood. And Charlie so, Shields was the majority leader at the so time. So basically, it was their decision to do it. 
it was their decision. Some people felt that uh, Rod Jeddon, as the, a very powerful House Speaker, had sort of almost forced them into doing it. Uh, uh, you know that that you know because on a couple of the issues. Mike was telling different senators throughout session, don't worry, I don't want to do this. I believe in the traditions of the Senate. But uh, as, you, as you alluded to, what I think is important is to understand the context. In the U.S. Senate, they call it the nuclear option, okay, something that's comparable. Senators in the minority view it as a, like a nuclear option, like yeah. you're blowing up the place. And you're pretty much, as you saw last week, once you do this, you're making like any senator who gets it done to them Basically, you are making an enemy out of them, definitely for the rest of that session. And I bet a lot of those senators will remember it when we start next session. And I bet some of the speeches on the first day of this, the uh, session next year are going to allude to what yeah, happened on Right to Work. Here's the difference between now and then, though. When they PQ'd Mohila, when they PQ'd that abortion bill, and when they PQ'd English, uh, only. English only, although that was a constitutional this amendment, was in 2007. all those things ended up becoming law. Now, granted, one of them had to be voted on, but they had a clear pathway to implementation. The thing that I don't understand and why they used the previous question here, and we'd have to have Ron Richard or somebody else on to explain, is the pathway to implementation to right to work is, I say at best, unlikely and at worst, just not there right now. Because they didn't have the votes. In other words, when they started... When they even did the previous question, they knew they would have the votes to pass it, but they wouldn't have the votes to override a gubernatorial veto, which means that some of the senators who didn't want to vote on it, including some suburban Republicans, all you're doing is ticking them off. So, I mean, I, I can't did imagine you, Eric Schmidt wanted to vote on that. Though. Yeah. Well, this is what I wanted to know. What sort of were you aware of any of the context? Were any people talking to you about this? Yeah. At the time? Yeah. I mean, and what I think, um, I'll tell you their logic, and then I'll give you my feelings on that sure. logic, okay. but I think that there's a lot of big Republican donors in the state that have been demanding a vote on right to work. Right. And exactly. you can That's tell them until the cows come home, look, it's going to get vetoed and we don't have the votes to override, but they want to see progress. And for years and years and years, they were trying to get it passed in the House and and you know, some previous speakers either didn't bring it up at all, said they didn't think it was necessary. Some speakers who got some labor support uh, or said, you know, we don't have the votes to pass it. And, you know, and, and now they had the votes in the House. They passed it. But uh, again, it was not a veto. No, it was not majority. a veto majority. But they need to show, you know, their donors, big, big donors, people like David Humphreys, the Humphreys family in southwest Missouri, for whom this is, a you know, a huge issue and some other donors, they want to show they're making progress. And now... If you just make sure that we raise enough money to get a Republican governor, look, we can get it over the finish line. But look how close we are. Uh, so I think they just, you know, it, it, it was a message to them. You know, that's just my honest opinion. I don't think it was right. I don't think it was smart because I think Chris Coster is going to raise two dollars from national labor unions for every extra dollar they raise. Yeah. Because now he can sell himself as, hey, I'm the last line of defense for right to work. We've got veto. You know, we've basically got. Uh, veto-proof Republican majorities in the House and Senate now, and no, they're not all. There are not veto-proof majorities for right to work, but there could easily be if a few of these suburban, semi-pro-labor Republicans get replaced by more conservative Republicans. And so, I I will be the only thing standing between the Missouri Legislature and right to work in well, Missouri. Well, the thing so, that I don't understand is, and I know I know the. The answer to this, because Matt Blunt, when he was elected, promised he wasn't going to push right to work. But it seems, but it, it seems like that was the window to pass right to work was during 
a four-year Republican governor tenure. And now we have a situation where there clearly is no pathway to passing right to work, and yet everyone's talking about it now. Is it just a donor thing, or is it just like, you know, basically what I'm asking is why were people so up in arms about it when Matt Blunt was governor compared to now, essentially? Why weren't people yeah. more up in yeah, arms right, than right. when when Matt Blunt was governor? I don't know. I can't I can't get in uh, David Humphrey's mind, you know, or other Republican donors yeah. uh, who care about that. Now, one of the things I was curious about, because with all this as the backdrop, was why Richard, as again, we've been trying to get him on the show, and hopefully we will be at some point, why he pushed it on Monday and Tuesday of the final week instead of doing it near the end of the week in order to get some of the other issues out of the way, including some that because he, that's what other happened. things he wanted. He wanted to bring a, a, a photo ID requirement up and all that. But by doing this early in the week, he basically killed that. Because in 2007, they PQ'd English as the official language and the abortion bill on the last day of session. So continue. Yeah, nothing passed after they PQ'd those. Yeah. So right. I agree with you, Joe. I think it, it, it probably would have, it seems like it would have been smarter if, if they wanted to get those things done. Why? I mean, do you have any inside knowledge about why they did it Monday and Tuesday? Another reason it would have been smarter to wait is, is Tom Dempsey, the president pro tem of the Senate, who didn't vote for the PQ and isn't, you know, And voted against right to work. Vo- and voted against right to work. Um, it didn't look real good for the Republican Party to have this internal schism, you know, to have the floor leader being the guy pushing a PQ on an issue that the guy above him, the president pro tem, was against. So since since President pro tem Dempsey wasn't going to be in attendance for the last two days because he went to his daughter's uh, college graduation in Tulane um, at, at, at Tulane, uh, that would seem to me like it would have been a more opportune time to bring it up. I know it sounds cynical, but I'm just you know being honest about it. So I was very surprised. I thought it would come up later in the week. So I mean, were there was there did you? Not that you would be involved, but that did other people talk to you about early in the week about what was happening? Because I know a lot of people talked to some, you. Some, some people talked to me about it, yeah. There was, you know, there was some other legislation that I was interested in, uh, and so I was sort of calculating whether things were going to be possible yeah. to, to get to the floor well, later in the week or if it had to kind of get passed by Tuesday, you know, in case the PQ was going to happen. Well, so, yeah, no, I was thinking. Did no. any of the Democrats seek advice from you on the filibuster part? Um, one of them did, yeah. Well, Did well, they follow your advice? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to ask on the flip side, though, because I've been, you know, asking critical questions of Republicans, but I want to ask critical questions about organized labor here. Because if you look at the endorsements that they did in 2012, now, granted, Eric Schmidt was running unopposed. He's a Republican he, from suburban St. Louis County. And David Pierce did not have a real general election. So I, I understand why you would endorse there. But you also have situations where, you know, labor-backed people like Kurt Schaefer, who was running against a real opponent. Yeah, Republican from Columbia. Who, you know, got labor support, pre- presumably because he's the budget chair. So do you think this was a situation where labor you know, pick the wrong horses and essentially are in a situation where they're teetering on the, the precipice of, of getting this passed because they didn't pick the right people? Or is this kind of inside baseball because there's not really a pathway to implementation here? I wouldn't necessarily say that labor picked the wrong horses. I think in most of those races you mentioned, the Democrat wouldn't have had a chance even if they would have gotten an infusion of labor money. I don't think Mary still uh, in Columbia was going to beat Kurt Schaefer, even if labor would have dumped en- endorsed her, dumped fifty, hundred thousand bucks into a race. I don't think it would have mattered. You know, Kurt had enough money to 
to fund his own race. I think what happened is some of these Republicans started running statewide. And when you're running statewide, you have a different constituency. When you're a Kurt Schaefer and you're representing Columbia, it's easy to say, oh, no, don't worry. I will never push right to work. I, I wouldn't, you know, that's not a priority, not something I'm interested in. But then all of a sudden you're running statewide and you have a possible primary opponent from your right who you know will whack you and just bludgeon you that you didn't support right to work if you don't vote for that PQ. And so, you know, circumstances change when electoral kind of context change mm -hmm. for some legislators. I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's the political reality. Now, for the Republicans that vote against right to work, the ones that come to mind, Paul Whelan, Gary yeah. Romine, Ryan Silvey, are they insulated now from, from you know, primary opponents or, or from you know, strong Democratic challengers now because they they voted against right to work. So look, if you look at those districts, right, all politics is local. Yeah. OK, so you've got some big Republican donors around the state who are saying we got to have right to work. But Ryan Sylvia is representing a swing district with a heavy labor presence, you know, in the Northland area of Kansas Correct. City. You got you got a guy like Gary Romine representing Farmington, you know, tons of labor of union workers who work on construction projects in the St. Louis area live in that and district. a lot of retirees you know, and a lot of retired labor people live in the, that district and care a lot about these issues so if you look at the the places jefferson county which is where uh the other senator paul, who Wieland. About, paul Wieland, comes from freshman republican another area where you know huge numbers of of like pro-labor pro-gun pro-life kind of old school conservative democrats that over the last decade or so have moved over and started voting republican but they're still pro-labor because a lot of them, you know, are, you know, journeymen. Yeah, they're carpenters, uh, plumbers, pipe fitters, what have you. So the point is, it's more instructive to look at these districts. I don't think these three members will be in trouble for voting ag against right to work. I think there's they're popular enough probably in their districts that there wouldn't be a credible opponent in the primary. And the yes have probably insulated themselves from a Democratic race, especially in the case of like Jeffco and Farmington with Wheeland and Romine, because those districts are both kind of trending rightward anyway. Now, will this have an impact? Let's say Eric Schmidt, who's a, said a Republican from suburban St. Louis County, who is running for state treasurer, has gotten a lot of money from Rex Singfeld, a couple other major donors. Right now, he doesn't have a primary opponent. Right now, there's no Democrat running against him so far. That's not true. Well, I mean, a well-known. I'm talking well-known. Continue. Okay. okay. And uh, now, and then you've got uh, Kurt Schaefer, wealthy Republican from Columbia who voted for Right to Work. Okay. He's running okay. for attorney general. Hang on a second. Hang no, no, on no. a second. Jake Zimmerman and Scott Sifton are also wealthy. Yes. They both have well, funded their campaign. I was just getting into that. My point being that you've got um, uh, Schaefer, who's going to be pretty formidable in the Republican primary. You've got one of the Democrats uh, who is running for attorney general um, is was a major player uh, Scott Sifton in this filibuster. So my point is, how, will some of this play out as we get closer to the 2016 elections? And how First of might all, it? We had we had Romney Holyfield. When are we going to have Rosenbaum Manis? I, I like. <laughs> I, I, I just like got to point that out because both Zimmerman and Sifton I'm, have self-funded. 
I so, know yeah. that. I, I don't want to. That I, I, wasn't the I, issue. I, but the you, issue I, is you know, that. Schaefer's put a lot of money in. You know, Schaefer's put about a half million. I think Zimmerman's put more like a couple yes. hundred thousand. So is Continue. it going to play out? The question is, how's it going to play out? And I think it's going to play out in a big way. You know, you got a real contrast here. You're going to, whoever becomes the Democratic nominee for attorney general, whether it's Zimmerman or Sifton, you know, Sifton has an opportunity there. Zimmerman's not in the Senate. Right. So Sifton's got an opportunity. I'm going to make my play to be the hero for labor. You know, he doesn't really exactly. have anything to lose by getting up there. So he's going to talk as long as he possibly can. Um, I mean, I'm not saying he didn't believe what he was saying. I'm just saying there's serious political potential benefits for doing of, so. Of course, the irony is uh, AFL-CAO didn't even endorse Sifton. They endorsed Lemke yeah. because he was pro-labor Republican. But continue. Yeah. You know, but uh, it's when you win in a race like that, smart you know, wise people, I think, who win races like that, the first thing they do if you're Scott Sipton is you go to labor and you say, look, I know you weren't with me last time, but I'm going to earn your support next time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you do what you can as opposed to politicians who don't believe in addition, but sometimes kind of practice more the art of subtraction. The first thing they think when they get in office is I'm going to screw all the people who are against me. Yeah. And that's not a way to statewide office. Yeah. The way to statewide office is to act in the way that Sifton did, which is to say, look, I can bring these people around by trying to kind of be a hero. He knew he was going to get PQ'd. So there was, you know, uh, so there was no downside in it in standing up other than, you know, he might have had to go to the bathroom or something. Yeah. How long was he up for? Um, not as long as Matt Bartle was. Yeah. But well, well, yeah, it was up quite a bit. Now, one one of the interesting things I wanted to ask about this, though, was you've got some of the rural Republicans who are contending that right to work is actually very popular in their districts. So if you're a Schaefer, Kurt Schaefer, who had to, he voted in favor of right to work, although he's from a moderate Republican district, he's going to be heading against one of these two Democrats in the general. Is this going to help him in rural Missouri? The fact that he voted for right to work or will it make any difference? I don't think it's a big voting issue. Yeah, uh, in most places, I think it's more of a donor level issue okay. than it is an actual voter okay. issue. Um, so, sure, it'll help him raise more money probably than he would have raised had he voted the other way. Uh, I'm not saying that's exactly why he voted that way, uh, but I do think it will be more of a factor in terms of getting union money one way and and a couple major businessmen's money the other way. I just don't see that as a resonant issue. Rural Missouri unfortunately, has been lost, to, you know, uh, to the Democrats and, and continues to be. There's a few pockets of rural Missouri where we still have a little bit of support. But in most of these counties in, in throughout southern Missouri, you know, the Democratic nominee for attorney general will get 35 to 40 percent of the vote. And uh, in the city of St. Louis, the Republican nominee will get 20, 25 percent of the vote. It's just it's a polarized state. The state is a microcosm of the country. Kansas City is the West Coast. St. Louis is the East Coast. And increasingly, as you see in the state legislature, there is an almost complete, you know, uh, absence of rural Democrats at this stage. I remember Chris Coster, you know, he said um, in my last year, I think in the, in the no, not my last year, in 2008, you know, he said as one of the only rural Democrats remaining in the Senate. Now, that was a little bit of a stretch because he was from Cass <laughs> County. And he and, grew up in St. Louis. And he grew up in St. Louis. And, and as we like to joke, he got his cowboy boots. He bought them on the plaza. But the <laughs> fact is, <laughs> the fact is, you know, Chris and Wes Schumeyer and Ryan McKenna were the only three rural Democrats left then. And now they're all gone, mm -hmm. you know. 
And uh, the only rural Democrats in the state house at this point, I guess there's Ben Harris, you know, in that's pretty much it. um, There's been a full collapse in northeast Missouri and everywhere else. But we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for for being on our show and giving us uh, dropping your knowledge on us. Is that the correct term? I don't know. Probably. That's how we say it in in Manhattan. (laughs) To to close this out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at Jay Manis. It's J M A N N I E S. And do we really want to follow you on Twitter? <laughs> yes, I think so. We do. Go ahead. What's and I'm I'm Jeff Smith M O. Uh, Mo is in Missouri. Thank you very much. Until next time. So long. <laughs> <laughs>